1: Welcome to Overnight America with Ryan Recker.
0: Sponsored by... Michael's Flooring. The flooring experts. michaelsflooringoutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, KMOX. Here's a good idea. Have a point. It makes it so much more interesting for the listener. Oh, I forgot this was on...
2: Forward
0: to the weekend, weekend,
1: party and party. Oh yeah. Party and party.
0: Ooh. Fun, 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 fun. Looking forward to the
1: weekend.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm looking forward to the weekend, but I was not looking forward to listening to Rebecca Black. You know, for some reason, Ryan loves this, and I I, I still don't know why. And when Ryan and I were texting about the show, I said, Do we have to do Rebecca Black? And he said, Oh yeah. So, this is for you, Ryan. Uh, this is your choice, not mine. But, you know, welcome to the weekend, uh, at least if you're on the East Coast. It's uh, a little after 11 o'clock here in St. Louis. Hope you will be starting your weekend in a better mood than I feel after listening to Rebecca Black. I'll believe it. At that. Thanks for staying up late with us, Brad Young. Sitting in for Ryan Recker. And uh, you know, in the last hour, we were talking about uh, these <clears throat> efforts for the FDA to, uh, to to reduce the amount of nicotine in cigarettes that will probably have the result of making people smoke more cigarettes, and <laughs> which to me is extremely counterintuitive. Uh, but uh, but on that issue, we also talked a little bit about marijuana and how much Illinois is making on their legalization of marijuana. But I thought it was funny that this week, on Tuesday of this week, was 420 day. And, of course, if you, you probably know, if you don't, Google it. But 420 is the, is the uh, international symbol for weed. And so uh, on 420 day, I thought it was funny that Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer gets up in the Senate and he talks about trying to legalize marijuana. Now, I think there's good arguments for legalizing marijuana. I'm not going to get into those again. And there's there's arguments against it. But what I want to look at is the optics, because if you are if you are a person that likes to smoke weed, do you really want to have Chuck Schumer's picture come to mind when you think about legalizing marijuana. No, you don't. You don't want you don't want Chuck Schumer's picture in your mind that's going to ruin the entire experience of seeing Chuck Schumer uh, talking to you about smoking pot. It just seems funny to me that Schumer is advocating it. I mean, if it, it, it seems like if you want marijuana to be legalized, you want someone cool. You want Tom Cruise to be advocating legalizing marijuana. You know, you want you want uh, uh, McConaughey out there advocating for the legalization of marijuana, maybe even Woody Harrelson, for goodness sakes, but not Chuck Schumer. You know, you don't want him as the face of the movement to legalize marijuana because that's going to scare people away. Uh, I just I just can't imagine that that the the uh, rebels and the revolutionaries of the 1960s who really thought they were doing something uh, when they were buying marijuana on the street. They don't want Chuck Schumer advocating it. That would ruin the experience. So that's the part that I found funny. and But also it brings to mind that, at least from my perspective, understanding federalism as I do, the idea of the balance between state governments and, and federal governments, I don't think the federal government should even be involved with this. I mean, right now, some states are legalizing it. Others won't. That's really the way it should be. I mean, if, if Colorado wants to legalize marijuana, they should be, have the right to do that. If Missouri says we don't want to legalize it, then Missouri should have the right to do that. We really don't need Washington stepping in and saying and making a decision about this one way or the other. So to me, it just looked like pandering. It looked like Chuck Schumer was pandering uh, to get the young people vote by coming out there and saying, uh, you know, making comments about legalizing marijuana. I'm really surprised he didn't try to act more cool, you know, wear sunglasses, uh, maybe wear really, really dark sunglasses so he couldn't see his eyes or Talk about eating brownies or something that would really have made him just look ridiculous, <laughs> Chuck Schumer. So uh, I just thought that was that was funny. Not that it had necessarily any legal implications on anything, but on this same kind of a topic, on what we used to call, you know, uh, uh, morality legislation, whether it's cigarettes, whether it's drug use, and prostitution is always in that same. Category. And just uh, yesterday, um, the city of Manhattan has announced that it will drop charges for prostitution and unlicensed massage parlors. And so they're not going to prosecute those cases. In fact, the prosecuting attorney in New York City, Cyrus Vance Jr., he's moved to dismiss 914 prostitution cases and over 5,000 loitering cases for the purpose of prostitution. In other words, they were hanging out, acting like prostitutes. They just weren't caught in the act, so to speak. So he's going to dismiss those charges. But here's what I find fascinating about this. We can debate the merits of that, but to me, that's not interesting. What's interesting is, is that even though the city is going to drop the charges against the sex workers and they're going to drop the charges against the prostitutes themselves, they will continue to prosecute the patrons of prostitution. You, you heard that correctly. So if someone is a prostitute and is arrested for prostitution, he or she will not be charged and will be released. If you are the patron who is paying for those services, on the other hand, you will continue to be prosecuted. Now, from my perspective, why should there be the difference? In other words, If you're going to say we're not going to prosecute people for being prostitutes, then why should you continue to prostitute or rather (laughs) to prosecute the patrons? Yeah, that was a that was a Freudian slip, folks. But why should you continue to prosecute the patrons of prostitution? I, I don't really understand. To me, that's a distinction without a difference. If you're saying on the one hand, it's okay, but on the other hand, it isn't that to me. Just doesn't make a lot of sense. Hey, we're going to take a break here. We've got some interviews coming up after the break, so make sure you stick around. Brad Young sitting in for Ryan Recker on Overnight America KMOX.
1: Earning St. Louis's trust for
2: 96 years. This is KMOX. <laughs>
0: Welcome back to Overnight America. Brad Young sitting in for the vacationing Ryan Wrecker. Ryan should be back on either Sunday or Monday night. Uh, but in the meantime, I get to sit in the big chair here on Overnight America. Hey, with all the discussions this week about the Derek Chauvin conviction, you know, most of the questions that I've received have been focused really on how and why intent makes a difference. With murder charges, you know, because he, he was convicted on three different charges and there were different levels of intent. And even the manslaughter charge that he was convicted on doesn't require any intent at all. So I wanted to talk not about the Derek Chauvin case, but but about how that applies to criminal charges right here in the state of Missouri. So joining us this evening is criminal defense attorney Neil Brentrager. Hey, thanks for joining us on Camo X.
1: Brad, thank you for having me.
0: Oh, it's great to have your expertise here uh, this evening on X. And your your law practice is focused on criminal defense, right?
1: That's right, Brad. I've been practicing law come this September 40 years. And like my father before me, I started out as a prosecutor. Uh, My two brothers were prosecutors. My sister was a prosecutor. My nephew was a prosecutor, my brother-in-law was a prosecutor, and my two sons have both been prosecutors.
0: I'm seeing a trend here. I'm seeing a trend.
1: Right. Right. To us, that was a form of public service, but it was also kind of triple A ball for us, Brad. Sure. So we would would learn how to hit the curveball, and then we moved on after a few years and moved into private practice, and I've been doing that ever since.
0: Well, that's why I wanted to have you on this evening to get a perspective both from the side of the prosecution and the side of the defense. Not so much talking about Derek Chauvin, but talking about how these issues impact uh, uh, criminal issues here in the state of Missouri. So, you know, I, I haven't seen this much interest in criminal defense law since uh, since O.J. Simpson famously tried on the leather gloves. Uh, so we're, we're really going to talk about using that Derek Chauvin case as a springboard to discuss how criminal law works in Missouri. So just like we saw with, uh, with Derek Chauvin's case, murder charges in Missouri are also based on intent, correct?
1: That's correct, and what we see is, in, in fact, this applies to all criminal charges, not just murder. But what we see are essentially four different categories of what we call intent. And sometimes we use the Latin word mens rea, which you and I haven't used since law school, Brad. Right? But again, <laughs> exactly, we're, we're talking about we're talking about intent, and and it's a, a descending scale. On the top of that scale, we have this word purposely. That is the most uh, that, is the, that is the most difficult thing to prove. And typically we would see, say, for instance, a, a, a premeditated murder. A murder first degree will include uh, that phrase purposely. We then come down to the next level, which is knowingly. A little bit below, a little bit easier to prove. Doesn't require quite the same level. And, and we use the word knowingly. Now that's going to be that sort of situation where, uh, again, you've engaged in, in, in some conduct that you knew would have a certain result. Okay, so we see that in murder second cases, again, a lesser offense of murder first degree. And then we move down into recklessly. And below that, we have criminal negligence. And you use the word manslaughter. Manslaughter generally tends to fit into the categories of recklessly or um, criminal negligence. And so, yeah, we have exactly the same framework that 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 they have in Minnesota. We have this thing called the Model Penal uh, Code, which applies to all states, but uh, but Louisiana, and uh, you know, again, what what we've tried to do is make this uniform across the United States. But it's the same thing here as we saw in Minnesota in terms of those those categories.
0: Well, when you talk about intent, it seems like judging another person's intent could be extremely challenging from the perspective of a jury or a judge. So, so how difficult is it, Neil, for Missouri prosecutors to prove intent? In Missouri criminal cases and, and how do they even develop evidence to demonstrate intent? How does that work?
1: So there's there's two ways you prove it. One is by what we call direct evidence, and that would be something like a confession or, or an admission, where someone says, clearly, I did this and I intended to do it. All right. That's that's simple. That's direct evidence. The other is what we call circumstantial evidence, and in most cases, what we're dealing with is circumstantial evidence. And that is evidence from which we can infer certain conclusions. And so what I mean by that is, you know, again, I may not have someone who says this is what I intended to do, but I have a witness who saw, you know, let's take a murder case again. Mm -hmm. I see somebody take a pistol, load the pistol, go outside, deliberately point it at someone and fire that weapon. Now, no one said this is what I intended to do, but it is reasonable for me to infer from that 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 he had the intent or she had the intent to do what it is that they're charged with. So again, in those situations, it becomes circumstantial evidence. But look, what you've hit is is really the heart of, of, of what the system is about, right? It's not easy, it's not supposed to be easy for a jury to make these decisions. We count upon jurors to come into a courtroom and use their common sense. We count on them, and again, we give them direction. And, and again, the, the things that I described earlier in terms of the four categories of intent you know, we give them written definitions that they can utilize. And of course, we ask them then to rely upon the evidence and apply the evidence to the written instructions or definitions that they've been given. And so it's not easy, but again, it's something that we have to have. It is, it is service that we must have, and uh, it's what makes the system work. If we don't have jurors uh, coming in and doing these things, the system falls apart. But look, let me, let me dispel any ideas that it's simple. It's never simple. Even in the Chauvin case, which we just saw, as, as clear as that evidence and as compelling as that evidence was, the jury still had to sit down for 10-plus hours and, and figure out what it all meant. That's what we asked them to do.
0: Yeah, you, you talk about jurors being so important, you know, for years, and I'm sure you had this this too, Neil, but I, I've had people would come to me and say, Brad, I've been picked for jury duty, and can you help me get out of it? I, I want to get out of this. And, and I always give the same speech. I always say, listen you're bright, you're smart, you're the kind of person that if I'm on trial, I would want you to be a jury member, Um, not just the only people who are left or those who can't figure out how to get out of jury duty. I want, and the system needs, intelligent, bright and thoughtful members of a jury and uh, because it's critical to the system.
1: It is one thing that we ask people to do as a public duty uniformly across the United States. And I couldn't agree with you more. It is absolutely our public duty to do it. I do it, Brad. When I get called up for jury duty, I go and I sit. Now, I've never been picked, and I've, I've, mm-hmm. I've been sent into a few rooms here and there. People kind of roll their eyebrows, but you know what? None of us should be above this. This is a duty we all have, and so I go and I do it. And, and again, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. It is an absolutely essential public duty that everyone should do. As boring as it may seem, yep. you know, again, it's one of those situations where if you don't go and you don't do it, then
0: the system fails. System fails. Hey, we're talking to criminal defense attorney Neil Bruntreger, and I know that every case is different, but, but how do you as a defense attorney, how do you challenge the evidence that we've even been talking about here this evening uh, that prosecutors point to in order to demonstrate the intent that you've described this evening?
1: Well, in order to do anything that would even begin to rise to the level of a challenge, the first thing you have to do is you have to be better prepared than the other side, right? Hmm. You have to know the evidence better than they do. And then what you look for, are you look for alternatives to the, the inferences that, that are being offered by the prosecution. And you do that in a variety of ways. You challenge perhaps the testimony, the recollections, uh, the veracity of the witnesses who are testifying, what we call impeachment, Brad. That's a word we use all the time. We challenge the testimony to make sure that what it is they claim they saw they actually saw. You look for inconsistencies in the facts, you look for inconsistencies between witnesses. you know you do those things that, that would basically dissect the prosecution's evidence and, and try and reconstruct it for a jury in, in a way that uh, that, that explains what happened in, in, in a manner that is acceptable to them. And sometimes sometimes you don't necessarily attack what they're claiming happened. You simply provide another explanation for why it happens. So something, for instance, like self-defense. Self-defense is a situation where you're not denying that, you know, for instance, you use deadly force or that, that you may have killed someone. But you're saying, look, I did it for a purpose, and here was the purpose, and I think that that was justifiable. So, again, you look for anything. You look for everything. You have to make sure that that the person that you're representing is going to get that fair trial.
0: Hey, we're, so, we're, we're talking to criminal defense attorney Neil Bruntrager. Hey, Neil, can you stick through the break? Because this is a fascinating discussion. I've got some more questions for you. If you can spare just a few more minutes, I'd like to carry this conversation uh, through this break. Is that OK? Sure. Glad to, Brad. Fantastic. Hey, again, we're talking to criminal defense attorney Neil Bruntrager, and we'll be back right after this. You're listening to Overnight America, Brad Young, sitting in for Ryan Recker. Don't go away. T-Mobile has invested billions to light up America's largest 5G network, from big cities to small towns, including right here in yours Get the inside story on what's happening with your St. Louis Cardinals this season directly from the Redbirds manager. It's the Mike Schilt Show, Sunday mornings at 1015, sponsored by Bath Fitter, on your voice of the St. Louis Cardinals. KMOX. Welcome back to Overnight America. Brad Young sitting in for Ryan Wrecker, and with all of the discussion of the Derek Chauvin case this week, I wanted to talk about, just kind of a, a 101 course on how criminal law works here in Missouri. And there's no one better than criminal defense attorney Neil Brunt Rager. Hey, thanks for uh, hanging with us through the break, Neil. My pleasure. You know, we saw in the Derek Chauvin case that the, that the prosecutors added The manslaughter charge kind of at the last moment. It was gone, then it came back. But in addition to the other murder charges, and I guess my question from a tactical perspective, do prosecutors sometimes add manslaughter charges when there's at least the potential issue with proving uh, a higher level of intent? yes
1: and and that is common practice all over and really in all types of offenses, not just murder, but actually, the Missouri Supreme Court has made that pretty easy because now, in a murder case it is it is routine for the courts to do what we call instruct on all of the lesser and included offenses so if i've got if I'm starting with the murder first, I'm also going to see an instruction on murder second and manslaughter and involuntary manslaughter in missouri so again that that's a common practice but The reason that people do this in other kinds of cases where there's not necessarily a mandatory uh, instruct down is because you never know. You know, again, jurors may have a problem with whatever it is you're trying to prove the intent was. And if you give them only one choice, Mm -hmm. if it's just black and white as to that one offense, they may say, well, you didn't prove this. So if it had a premeditation aspect, for instance. And you know what? I just I don't feel like it was premeditation. It may have been spur of the moment, it may have been heat of passion, but it wasn't premeditation. If you give them only that one choice, they may they may say, no, it wasn't that. So again, you bank against it. You yeah, bank so tactically it and and struck down.
0: Right. So tactically they're 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 if they didn't add those charges, the prosecutor runs the risk of a complete acquittal.
1: He does. And that's and again, that's an interesting question that they face. Now, what really is the interesting part of this, and a lot of people don't think about this, Brad, is that that is often more of a problem for defense counsel than it is for a prosecutor. Why is that? Because I may, well, I may feel like I've presented a wonderful defense to the greater charge, but I've got exposure on the lesser charge. Now, do I then ask for the lesser offenses? And again, it's a real problem. Now, you know, Mm -hmm. again, you're taking a risk and that risk is not with the lawyer. That risk is with the person you represent. So, of course, you never make those decisions without involving your client and letting them tell you what to do. But it often is a real tactical question for the lawyer. And that's one of those three o'clock in the morning questions. <laughs> do I submit the lesser ones you know, or do I just go with what they've charged with the idea that if they have only faced that, I might
2: be able to beat that one?
0: Yeah, fascinating. The stuff that wakes you up in the middle of the night. Uh, you know, there's another unique aspect of the, of the Derek Chauvin case, and that was the, the clear and convincing video evidence really that just showed the act in question. So whether we're talking about the, the prevalence of cell phones or even the, the presence of security cameras, from your perspective, Neil, how is technology changing the nature of criminal defense law? it's changed it completely
1: and and they are they're ubiquitous whether it is a camera whether it is a security camera or a phone whatever it might be they are everywhere brad and you just have to expect that the video is going to show up at some point there will be a video and what's interesting is the jurors now expect videos so there is there is an opportunity there in those instances uh, as, as, as defense counsel, there is an opportunity to suggest that there is perhaps incomplete evidence if we haven't seen the video. Mm-hmm. Juries watch a lot of television. People come in with expectations. You know, it's, it's the CSI ex- expectation, right? Where I've, I've seen that, you know, we're always going to have DNA, right? We're always going to have <laughs> fingerprints, right? We're always going to have, have cell phone video, right? Well, the answer is wrong. We don't always have those things, okay? But jurors expect them. So as counsel, one way or another, you better be prepared to either explain what it what the video actually is or why you don't have it or why you don't have fingerprints or whatever it might be. So again, it's it technology has changed dramatically and that has changed the expectations of our juries.
0: Yeah. We're talking to criminal defense attorney Neil Bruntrager and another question that, that have, has been asked of me a lot lately, and you probably get this question as well all the time, probably at parties, but how can you, and this is the question as it's phrased, how can you defend someone who is obviously guilty? That's the question I get all the time. But Neil, from your perspective, why is it so important to make sure that that the government upholds its burden of proof to proof beyond a reasonable doubt?
1: Well, Brad, it, the answer to that question is, It's really easy to represent somebody who's guilty. The hard person to represent is the person who's innocent. All right. And again, I always start with that. And then I always move to what is really the point here is that, look, who gets to decide that? If somebody Mm -hmm. says to me, how do you represent this guilty person? They don't get to decide. The only person, the only people that get to decide these questions are juries or a judge if you've waived a jury. So no one is guilty until somebody has signed a verdict form that says you are guilty. Until that happens, the Constitution says unequivocally that an accused person enjoys the presumption of innocence. It is the bedrock. It is the pillar mm-hmm. of our legal system. If you don't understand that, then you don't understand the system at all. So again, it's, it's that presumption. It is the right that we have that, that then compels the state to prove Mm-hmm. that you are guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. But that presumption means everything. So again, people who say, how do you represent a guilty person? Well, who gets to call that? Exactly. You know, again, and I I, I I get right back on them when, when that happens and, and say, do you get to make that decision? And if that's the case, why do I need a justice system? If we can decide independently of the courts, then why do I need a justice system? So again, it, 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 it's everything, Brad. And if people don't understand that, then they need to go back to civics 101.
0: Exactly. And and uh, I am reminded of how people love to quote and people love to say this to me and they probably said it to you too when they quote the Shakespeare line from Henry the 6th where the the criminal in that particular Shakespeare play, Dick the Butcher, uh, he says, "Let's kill all the lawyers." But Dick the Butcher was was a criminal. And he was dreaming of what would need to occur for him, who he was a career criminal. What would it take for him to become the king? So really, Shakespeare, and I always point this out when I get that quote, but Shakespeare meant it as a compliment to attorneys and judges who who instill justice in society. So here, here's my question, Neil. If, if the government were not forced to prove their case beyond a reasonable doubt, what might be the result of that lessened burden of proof how would it affect us as a society if government wasn't held to that standard
1: it, it would mean tyranny it would yes. mean it, it would mean the collapse of our judicial system if and and again it becomes our job Brad as lawyers to make sure that that is never that never happens we never ever will allow them to lessen that burden. It is our job every day before the bar to make sure that we uphold the, 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 the appropriate burdens and we require each person who is in that courtroom to perform their duties. And, and in my 40 years, I will tell you that I have never seen a situation where someone has done something less, that that everyone has done that. Now, there is a problem. There is a problem. And this is this is a conversation that we're having across the nation today, and that is, does everyone get the same level of representation? And clearly, people don't. Clearly. And, and the inequities that that has created are truly problematic. And it, it really does sort of tie in with what you've just described. Have we allowed the burden of proof to be lessened in some way, shape, or form? And it's something we have to be constantly vigilant of. We constantly have to, to make sure that we are, we are checking this and, and adhering to the standards. So it is, It's again, getting back to what I said before, it's the bedrock of, of everything that we do. And if we don't have that, if we let that down, I mean, just think about it on a, on, a, on a local basis. You know, in the municipality you live in, you have a prosecutor. If we don't hold them to that standard, if they can basically say, yeah, you probably did it, what happens there? Or on the county level, or on the state level, or on the national level. You know, there are any number of ways in which, again, we could impose a tyranny on people, because we've now said that the government basically can do whatever it wants to do. The moment we stop fighting back, and that may sound revolutionary, but let me, let me remind you that we began, of course, in, in a revolutionary manner. Yes, we did. And, and, what we're, and, and of course, what we're doing is we're upholding these bedrocks that came to us from English jurisprudence. But it says, it says that these are obligations that the government has, and lawyers, it's your job to make sure that those obligations are recognized and upheld. So that's what you and I do every day, Brad. And yeah. again, I think it's important, and people often lose sight of it. But you know, that's just sort of the nature of things, right?
0: It is. And not only did we start as a revolutionary country, but in large measure, we rebelled against this concept that the that the government who has the power to put guilty people in jail for, with little or no proof, that same government would have the power to put innocent people in jail with little or no proof, which is why we have to, in the interests of preventing tyranny, to make sure that the government proves all cases, even for those who may be obviously guilty, and especially for those who may be obviously innocent. We're talking to uh, to defense attorney Neil Bruntrager. Hey, Neil, uh, I appreciate you joining us this evening here on CAMOx. It's a fascinating discussion, and if folks listen, if you've got some criminal defense needs and you need some assistance, make sure that you contact and reach out to uh, to Neil Bruntrager. He just briefly got disconnected. We're going to pick him right back up here in just a moment because I want to, to finish this conversation with Neil. Hey, Neil, we got disconnected there. I apologize for that. But uh, But if folks want to reach out to you to get more information, maybe they've got questions about criminal defense issues, maybe along the lines that we've discussed here this evening, how can folks reach out to you?
1: The firm is Bruntrager & Billings. You would get me or uh, any one of my my various relatives that I work with, the brothers, sisters, brothers-in-law and sisters-in-law, sons and nephews. We're all together, and we're there certainly to help people when they face these problems. Brad, I appreciate your time, and I appreciate your efforts to educate people on these issues.
0: Hey, and what's your phone number if folks want to give you a call?
1: 314-646-0066.
0: Very good. Neil Brentreger. hey, thanks for for sharing your time with us this evening. We really appreciate it.
1: It was my pleasure, Brad. Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you. Hey, this is Overnight America with Brad Young filling in for Ryan Recker. We'll be right back. Overnight America with Ryan Recker is sponsored by Michael's Flooring, the flooring experts. michaelsflooringoutlet.com On the voice of St. Louis, AMOX. Hey, welcome back to Camo X, Overnight America. Uh, during that, uh, that was a great interview, but during that interview, we did get a call from AJ, and I want to go to AJ now because he's been holding for a long time. AJ, welcome to Camo X. Uh,
2: thank you, Brad. Uh, by the way, I really appreciate your broadcast. I uh, love your wisdom. You seem to have a grasp on things. I love it. Thank you. Uh, this thing about uh, looking up your symptoms on the Internet, I really can't tell you the last time I did that, but what I have done is looked for a particular nutrient found in different foods. It's good for the eyes, good for the bones, good for the skin, just various things like that, and it happens quite a bit. You'll see a proponent, like, for instance, for uh, apple cider vinegar, uh, you'll see quite a few people endorsing apple cider vinegar, but then you'll see another website that says apple cider vinegar is dangerous. And here's Mm -hmm. why. So, uh, what I try to look for, of course, is credibility. Uh, I try to look for objectivity versus subjectivity. And I try to look for, uh, the motive, uh, exactly what this person is uh, proposing or, or the interests of the advocator. So, uh, We do this on an everyday basis with each other, just interacting. But I'm curious in the privacy uh, confines of your privacy as you're on the internet looking for things, is there a particular uh, standard that you go by personally that that could help us out here?
0: I'll tell you, in my law practice, I, I deal, I'm representing companies. Uh, in employment law and workers' compensation claims. So I represent employers. That's my day job. And so I'm dealing with work-related injuries all day long, and those are primarily orthopedic injuries. So whenever I'm looking at websites and and Googling injuries and looking at the standard of care and how they're treated so I can depose doctors or determine uh, how long it's going to take to recover from a certain type of an injury – I primarily look for websites that are in, in academia, where it's a, it's a, some medical school that's publishing an online journal. I look at online journals that are journals published by medical societies like the AMA, like the uh, Journal for Orthopedic Surgery. Like there's a ton of those types of associations that publish articles, newsletters, and uh, publications. So I primarily go with medical schools. Uh, education facilities, and medical journals. Uh, Because what I find is if I look at and I see, for example, a chiropractor saying this or that, and if you come to my chiropractic center, I'll, you know, cure Ebola with vitamin D. I mean, at that point, I know they're selling something. So that's not a credible source for me. So that's why I try to steer towards those particular websites how about you a j what i mean do you have a uh, you you gave some ideas about seeing if someone had a uh, uh, what what is their interest and motivation has that worked well for you
2: it it does uh it's obvious we're all selling something but uh like you said are there facts uh are they reputable is there experience there that uh is proven and uh i Uh, I'm seeing a little different perspective here as you're explaining these things to me. Uh, it's an everyday thing that we deal with in life. And, uh, I try to look for, uh, something that just speaks to the heart sometimes versus the mind. Of course, you, you need to use a good balance between the two, but, um, uh, well, we have, we have to use,
0: A.J., what I call is discernment. You know, you have to be discerning about information that is quality information as opposed to information that might be quackery. And sometimes that's tough to make that discernment, uh, but you have to do that. Hey, we're coming up here at the end of the show, so I'm going to have to let you go, A.J., but thanks for calling in. I really appreciate your call.
2: My pleasure. Thank you, Brad. Thank you.
0: Great call. Thank you, AJ. Thanks for holding. I know you had to hold a while. Uh, we had a great time tonight. Make sure that you uh, stick around. Coming up in the next two hours, we'll be uh, having the replay show of earlier this evening. We've got some more interviews with, uh, I believe we'll be hearing uh, from uh, cardiologist, uh, Dr., uh, Dr. Farah. And she's going to be talking about this very subject of Googling your symptoms and what are the potential downsides of Googling your symptoms, whether it's beneficial or from her perspective as a cardiologist so stick around uh, Ryan Recker should be back here in the saddle next week on Overnight America KMOX
2: if things were only like they used to be the lie lying-